We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast. I'm Pete, joined by Mike. And today we're going to talk a little bit of the economics of the NBA. But before we do so, just best wishes to Bronny and LeBron and, and his family. Mike, scary situation over the weekend. We don't have a ton of details, of course, but just wanted to start off the show with, you know, sending them our best. Yeah, 100%. It, it's a such a clear moment of just the prioritization of family uh, overall. And, and I think anybody can relate uh, to just thinking about if, if somebody in their family, and particularly a child, uh, particularly somebody, and, and at this point, a young adult um, in Bronny, but going through something like that. And it's, uh, man, that was tough to see that news, but also encouraging um, that he is does seem to be uh, in really good shape right now and home. And just simply put, Pete, as you said, best wishes to the family uh, there. Nothing to do with basketball. Absolutely, man. You know, life can throw you some some curveballs sometimes in a and uh, I just wishing them all the best in in navigating that. So, yeah, today we're going to talk some of the economics of the NBA, right? Jalen Brown just agreed to a five-year, $304 million extension, Mike. Although what's going on in soccer, even Mbappe's contract even penetrated into my world, right, of, of news and whatnot and, you know, seeing what he got. So, please, please, please. Yes, yes. Let me say this about the Mbappe quote-unquote contract. I, we, Pete, I was in the office the other day and I came up to you and already started a, a mini rant about this. It's not actually seven hundred plus million dollars that is being offered and would ever be delivered to Mbappe. Now it would still be some ridiculous number, like probably closer to three hundred mil. In uh, Kareem Benzema is going to get something probably close to two hundred, at least so we think. But there's a difference between three hundred and seven hundred. The seven hundred would be if Mbappe were to actually sign, which he won't because he doesn't want to go there. He's going to end up going to Real Madrid. But that would include like him signing over every single thing attached to his likeness and his persona that they could mm. use in Saudi Arabia, like in perpetuity. So it's to me, that was just basically smart marketing um, so that the Saudis and every, everybody else could essentially get uh, folks around the world to, to use that. Oh, look, they're yeah. going to pay him this number. It's, it's a fake number. And that bothers me. So uh, <laughs> in this NBA podcast, nonetheless, thank yeah. you for giving me a chance to get that off my chest. That was pissing me off. 
I'm so glad you cleared that up. And yes, that is uh, well done on on the marketing side. And the the economics of soccer completely are beyond me. And the economics of the NBA, honestly, with the new CBA, uh, I think we're figuring that out. And so I think that's the purpose of this conversation right now. We've got Anthony Davis eligible for an extension that, um, you know, the message coming out of, of the media is that all intentions are for him to sign the extension. And so I'd like love to talk about that with you, Mike, about like, what do these contracts mean in terms of how you build a team going forward? Because each CBA kind of changes the landscape of where the places that you can build, where's an efficient place, where's an, a place that you can get in trouble down the line. And so I think these are interesting conversations to have with the Lakers uh, going forward, just kind of have that five-year view. Yeah, man. The economics of it, it's it's... It's hard to comprehend in the way that I remember the first time that Alex Rodriguez's contract and what was it like 250 or something that got put out there um, that was accurate. But that was over the course of what, 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it was it was like that. Right. It ended up being about 25 mil. But at the time, still just the raw number of it. Um, Kevin Garnett's contract. There were some hints of that right before they changed the way that things got out there. And it's just hard for to comprehend now it's become less hard to comprehend because of where the the overall economics of the sport have come up. And obviously, it's all because of the television revenue. And the reason the television revenue continues to go up while some of the other economics are flat uh, in the world is because that's the only thing that people will actually watch live anymore. And therefore, mm-hmm. the money that can be pulled in from advertising. And, and this is the whole business model. This is why things are where they are. And you know, the way that things have gone the last couple CBA negotiations, it's been mostly copacetic between the league and between the players union, at least as as copacetic as it could be. And it's as close to 50-50, um, I think, as could be, if not literally so. And I don't – the number – like the value for one player to be making, let's say, at the end of Jalen Brown's contract, right? It, what does it end up being, like $70 million or something like that? Just about, yeah. It is hard to comprehend – um, it, but I don't know, like where the, the, the part for me is not so much that players are making too much money. Owners are making too much money. I don't think it's any of that. I just would love to see that as the revenue goes up this much, maybe some of that money could go to like uh, ticket prices going slightly down or, um, or concessions in the arenas go just, just so the average family, you know, could better go to a game. Uh, and instead of just the money continues to go up and it continues to get 50 50 and Pete within this a caveat, like some, I think on the ownership side, we'll do stuff like this. Like, like they could decide, Hey, we're going to, we're going to lower prices or we're going to do this, or we're going to make sure there's X amount of fans. And I know the Lakers do that. They keep tickets down uh, at a certain number in, in the upper deck, especially. Right. So there's, it's not like th- that doesn't happen, but I would almost love to see it. And I know it never will, but be legislated in to when the, when the, the pie increases that it just gets to help sort of the people that aren't, that don't have as much money um, be a part of it. But I, I'm not naive and I, <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen. That's just the only place that my mind goes when you see the numbers overall from the television deal, forget the split between the players and the, and the owners that they agree upon. That's the thing that I sometimes get back to in which there was some vehicle uh, for for evolution in some way. I 
totally get that. And I think that that's in some ways another, a different conversation, like the idea of the the overall pie, right? And where does it go and, and kind of where are the efforts put in in yeah. that respect? You're thinking more about the basketball. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like yeah. team building yeah. and bring, roster bring construction. Back to basketball yes, yes, here. no, no, no. My world economics rant uh, here in the, in the first <laughs> seven minutes where things are going. We, we may need to have that uh, one of these days, Mike, for sure. But uh, on, on that front, like I think what you're communicating there earlier, especially about the A-Rod contract and how what seems gaudy at one time, just give it five years, 10 years, and all of a sudden like, oh yeah, that's that's what guys make that are really good. And um, that's why I think it's more helpful to talk about these in terms of percentage of the salary cap that it takes up in terms of like, what does Jalen Brown making 69 million in 2029, what does that, what percentage of the salary cap does that take up take up. Now, all the things you have to get right to project the salary cap in the first place in 2029, of which you touched upon several of them, I think takes a lot of guesswork. But they're in the position of having two guys that are super max eligible. I believe Tatum is eligible for a slightly bigger extension than this, like 322 next year. And so how do you build a team around that, right? They acquired Porzingis and they look to extend him. And we're focusing on them because I think they're they represent an inter- interesting test case in building a roster, a two star build in this next CBA. Pete, would you like to see this succeed in Boston? Amen. Just kidding, right? Look, I've got my <laughs> my monkey paws and my my pendants and incantations, man. Last couple of years, you know, two years ago it was a we had a close call, so you know I'm I'm calling on the gods in whatever ways I can. I guess my my pushback to sort of when you start to think about teams and and if you have a super max contract like this with Brown, you're going to have another one come up with Tatum. And then who knows what else comes in salary wise. What we just saw take like the Bradley Beal situation. Teams are going to be able to get off even the most ridiculous of contracts or Russell Westbrook's contract uh, last year and what that was, especially in an expiring year. Now, Beals, of course, still had uh, had years left. Uh, on it, many years left. And it's just like Damian Lillard, right, would be the next one. Now, is that seen as a positive contract overall? Well, very few teams are are making an offer, right, to take it on, in part because Lillard has made it clear that he only wants to go to Miami. But I just think that we're this is the new, like, figuring out what the luxury tax implications are going to be down the line to me is is a part of the equation. But I just think that teams are are going to have, whether it's first-round picks or younger players, that's now going to be the currency uh, more than just keeping your team without having any bad contracts so that you can – that if there is a great free agent, that you can just bring that player into space. Like That is the thing that's different. And then trying to think about it from a Lakers standpoint, well, what do you do then? Do you – so far what they've chosen is the continuity from last year's roster, but at some point, right, in the next two who, – who knows it? one, two, three, four years, who's that next Lakers superstar going to be? And how is that player going to be acquired? Well, the team's, I think, going to be pretty good. It's probably not going to be a top 10 pick unless things go completely the wrong way. And then even if it is, Pete, how long does it take, right, for a top 10 pick who mm-hmm. in this day and age is most likely 18, right? How, how long is it going to take for that player to be a star? So it's just a – I'm worried less, I suppose, about the raw numbers, even in Boston's case – um, thinking about like what the alternative for them was, was I guess losing Jalen Brown, which and, is not an alternative, right? which is not palatable. Even if you're only thinking about trying to win next year. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think though that it's interesting to explore what is the, 
chain reaction effect of that. And so, yeah, you have this sort of build and this is sort of how it's going to be. Then what does that mean in terms of how you build out the rest of your roster, right? And one of the things that I've been kind of cracking up about thinking about recently is how the roles have reversed and like we're the team that has this like solid guys in the middle class on the roster, right? In terms of the long-term build. And then you look at a team like Phoenix, for example, they're the team that's built around three stars and a bunch of vet men guys. That was us a couple of years ago, Mike. And it's just, it's amusing to me that that's kind of flipped. So I, I'm really curious what impact those supermax type of extensions are going to have on the number of 15 to 20, $25 million players, uh, a year going forward. And the Lakers have kind of have a couple guys on in that salary range right now. Now that can change very quickly, right? You can combine two of them in for a star and all of a sudden you're a three-star build again. But I do think that the economics of this and the supermaxes and all of that are going to have an impact on that like 15 to $25 million a year type of guy. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was Austin Rivers just voiced this right um, on uh, which part. Yeah. The, the podcast that he's doing for the ringer right now as you as you think about what percentage of the cap is being filled by what player Pete let me kind of kick the question back to you how how would you handle that like what is the what is the thing that you would do differently um knowing what the what the constraints are and knowing how the the system is evolving here so our friend of the pod and great draft analyst uh, Mike Garcia is very passionate about the importance of your closing five. And this is something he's made an argument about over the last few years. And I have come more and more to his side of seeing things in that you need to have five guys. Now, this is all predicated on health, right? Obviously, to win a title, you need your guys to be relatively healthy. But you need to have five of them that are like, this is my group. They can work against a couple of different types of styles, but this is my closing five and it's really, really good. And I think it's important to reverse engineer building a roster from that idea, meaning that you might have a three stars, but if there's one guy on the court, there's one guy on the court that you wouldn't be like, yeah, that guy's going to close in game six of the NBA finals, or he's below the caliber of player that can do that. So many of the decisions that get made on offense and defense, especially when you're strategizing to just beat one team, not just the regular season, right? But in a playoff series, just beat one team. They're going to press on that advantage over and over and over again in a way that I think really neutralizes your really your high-end talent. And so I think the way to do it is to get as much star, pos- star talent as possible, right? These are the guys that get you all the way through it. But I think your floor needs to be five guys who you can be like, yeah, we can roll with this group of five. And then obviously you need like two dudes who can contribute off of the bench. And so that to me is the sweet spot. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll keep it rolling. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. So the fifth guy theory it's it's smart like it makes sense of course you have to have the closing fives i just think that you're we're assuming too much by thinking that a team can control who the closing five is for sure going to be matchup to matchup health wise especially like it worked for denver this playoff run that they stayed healthy uh, they basically played six guys i guess seven once christian brown got minutes at, at certain points but that was things in an absolute best case scenario the way to me that I think is more palatable in the modern NBA is to try to have nine or 10 guys that, that like in a pinch, you can at least survive with on the floor. Now, of course, out of that group, you're going to have your five. That's your ideal five. And we could go through who that would be on the Lakers right now. And I think that like this is where an example of so Gabe Vincent, I don't know that the Lakers needed this kind of skill set that he had, but he also just showed that he can stay on the floor. Uh, in the most high leverage moments mm-hmm. in a different way, maybe even than D'Angelo Russell or Jared Vanderbilt. But you might very you very much need Vanderbilt and Russell and the talent that they have mm-hmm. um, on the overall roster, not just to get through the 82, but even in, in playoff series, like to to have to have things happen in, in quality minutes. So I'm like to kick this back to you. Isn't this still just about getting the most good players that you can have? on a roster and then like over the course of a season, ironing out what exactly that closing five is going to be ideally, but not having to depend on a specific five right, or a specific group of guys that is just unlikely in the modern NBA to actually come to fruition. So, well, I think it, it depends on what your goals are, right? I think that the argument that you're making is a way to get through 82, right? In that you've got nine or 10 guys that can fill in, right? You're going to have injuries, just the regular level of attrition that's going to be there. But come playoff time, it it really, a lot of the champions, they've got seven guys that they really depend on, right? I'd throw Jeff Green uh, as that seventh guy rather than Brown for Denver, but that's what you need. We saw Toronto do this a couple of years ago as well. And so in some ways, the argument that I'm making is you've got to make a choice, right? Obviously, you want as many good players as possible. And if you, you could have 10 all, un, unselfish all-stars who play for the team, that would be great. But under the cap realities, especially with this new second apron, which is essentially going to function as a hard cap, you're going to have to make choices at certain part, parts of the roster of like, does this matter more to me or does that matter more to me? And I suppose what I'm saying is that while getting those the best superstars you can is the top priority, to me, the second priority, rather than those eighth, ninth, tenth guys, is getting the best fourth and fifth player possible, right? That that can be as dependably in most of those lineups as possible. I prioritize that over the guys at the end of that eight, nine, ten. So it's kind of like a, a whittling down of 
how many conversations do we have about the three through eight? And so I extended it out to eight. You're almost limited. You're almost chopping off one of those two guys because by the time you get to the finals, like, yes, it's you're, you know, maybe that seven, eight even sure. are less likely to be on the court for the whole time. But that I, I do think that that's somewhat of a similar point that we were making when you have when you had Westbrook um, at theoretically the three spot, but at the expense of four through eight relative to what you can do with the rest of the mm-hmm. roster. And now we see with the Lakers what their like what their three through eight was after the trade deadline uh, to me, and what it'll be next year is wholeheartedly different. And and so if if you want to bring Boston back into it, so now if, if you're gonna, if you're going to have Jalen Brown and you're going to have Jason Tatum and they're going to be making X percent of the salary cap, then what can your three through eight or in the case I guess even three through six, whatever, can that be good enough? Um, how smart do you have to be? How how good do you have to be in development, right? How many Austin mm-hmm. Reeves type players can you find? There are very few that you're going to get undrafted that can then be developed and play. So, yeah, it, it, from a, it's really interesting in that standpoint, Pete, from a team building aspect. Like where where do you start? Um, and that's if you have two superstars, right, exactly. which most and, teams and, do not. But that I think ideally knock on wood that we can keep it up but that the lakers should be building from not that presumption but that is something that should be the idea that we're trying to pursue as we always have right yeah and that's sustainable too for for the lakers because they're they're almost always going to have the opportunity if things aren't screwed up too much to have a couple of superstars right at the at the base um, of what their mountain wants to be built into. Exactly. And so then the next question is the third guy. Who is the if you're going to have a third guy and that's where I think Boston comes into play in that they're given Porzingis pretty good money too. It's not Tatum and Brown money, but he's going to make a significant amount of money. And so I think that your third guy in these types of builds that if you're going to pay somebody like that a lot of money also that they have to be a really good fit and we will see that in Boston, but it, like in Russ's case, he wasn't a good fit. And so that becomes a catastrophic mistake, right? Where you're throwing all that money and the player isn't a natural fit with the two superstars. And all of a sudden you're in a really bad spot. Now, I think there's different degrees of that, right? Where, and that, that to me is more and more and more where I'm thinking about those three-star builds. And I grew up on a three-star build, right? Of Magic, James and Kareem, but that was peanut butter, jelly, and bananas, man. Like that was those three went together in ways where it was like if there was the modern economics, like would Worthy be worth a whole ton of money as the third guy? Heck yeah, right? Um, but that's where you I think you get in trouble first, Mike, is that third guy. If you make the wrong decision there, then all of a sudden you're in a you're in a bad spot. Quick sandwich tangent. Would bananas be the third ingredient? No, I was just riffing. In, like, not if you no, have the jelly. Curious. No, no, no. Like, if you had the jelly, you probably wouldn't throw the bananas in. It's either the bananas or the jelly, I think. Okay. But okay. whatever yeah, the, I mean, the third I, thing, butter, whatever the third thing that goes on with the peanut butter and jelly. Butter? The reason it, it occurred to me is because a friend of mine, um, shout out to Ben Golliver, was the other day talking about how he likes just having peanut butter sandwiches and like, like oh. without jelly and without even maybe a marshmallow um, type compliment to the peanut butter, which I'd be interested in. But yeah, peanut butter and jelly is, it's a tough one because it's, that seems to be the staple. It's on 
every time I get onto the Lakers plane or every time I'm in the meal room, including in the summer league, there's a whole set of peanut butter jelly sandwiches pre-made. There's wow. never just peanut butter sandwiches. Right. And then it did get me thinking. I was like, oh, maybe I was just Pete throw a banana on. And like, I, I get it. I, it seemed a little, I, I just yeah. wanted to press that issue. No, I, and, I appreciate you. Clear, I appreciate you pulling on this thread. And I, you know, maybe this, the, the place this leads the analogy is that when it, when you've got peanut butter and jelly, you don't need a third thing, right? It, you know, yes, you just, thank you. That is, that is a, a smart way to tie this up. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, I think you see where I'm going with that though, Mike, is, is that like, if you make a mistake on the third dude and you throw a lot of money at him, then the impact that that can have on the rest of your roster is, is, it's a risky move, right? And so that's part of why I think the Porzingis acquisition, we'll see. But if it doesn't work out too well, that that has an impact on everything else. Yeah, the third guy, and if it's not the right guy, not only could you be in trouble in the short term, but in the long term and then have to make a trade. It makes me think of a couple different teams. Uh, it, it makes me think of Minnesota and everything that they put in to go and get Rudy Gobert. Uh, mm-hmm. And what they're going to have to do to get out of that, like they're still a good team, but they have to me, their ceiling is so much lower. And do they now have to potentially trade towns, but then they still have Gobert? like that's a situation. How about Cleveland? And and now there are three guys, if you're including like Jared Allen as a guy, but then Mobley's young and they bring Mitchell in and all of a sudden, you know, Mitchell's clock might be getting a little closer. And and is he enough of a guy after what he did and how much he struggled against the Knicks? Um, how about the Suns with this model? We talked about a little bit bringing Bradley Beal in and he is now the third guy and they are committed to that. And yet they've done some good work on some of those minimum type contracts. Can can enough of those players come through? So th- there's all these different teams, Pete, that are that are trying to wrestle with what the economics are going to be um, in the NBA. And the Lakers kind of have are, are almost chilling in a certain context. It's like got the two superstars. We've got some guys in the middle now. We've got some uh, some upside guys in the low end of the roster. And I I like that as a as a way to if somebody else presents himself who's a number three, but not a not necessarily a superstar, right? Then that player who's the ideal fit with LeBron and AD can come. But that question, Pete, has to change every year too when LeBron's going into year twenty one. So there's there's so much uh, going on with all this, but it's a, it is different from how we would have thought about a conventional team build even a couple of years ago. One of the things the Lakers front office has prioritized over the last few years is optionality, right? The ability to pivot in different directions when necessary. And I think that this is a circumstance where that serves serves us really well, right? Where we could go in a bunch of different directions, whether it's at the trade deadline or even after this year, that um, are a result of kind of the decisions that have been made along along the way. And that said, though, it's easy to stay in that spot where you feel good about Hey, I got a lot of options ahead, but I do think we're going to have to pick one or in in a couple of instances, a couple of different directions and commit to them at some point when the opportunities present themselves, Mike. So as you said, when, when those opportunities do come up, we're in the position to be able to jump on them. But I think that it can be easy to be like, it, or it, it's difficult to, to under, to know when to wait and when to pounce on that. Hey, this is your chance. So I love this player as a person. And so I, I don't mean this in any sort of derogatory sense, but I, I think about when Chicago was trying to figure out their mix and it was like young Derrick Rose and, uh, and it, you know, Joakim Noah and all that. And even before Jimmy Butler got to be what he's turned out to be. And they went out and got Carlos Boozer, right. And thought like, Hey, can, can he be kind of like, like the mix, the, the missing piece. And that's the kind of thing that you just can't miss on. Right. If you're going to actually have a chance to win. 
And so modern day, I'm thinking about Anthony Davis and in the, in the context of Jalen Brown and Jalen Brown's deal, like I, he's a little bit polarizing. So he was all NBA second team last year. I, I thought that was way too generous. I thought it, it should have been, I, I wouldn't have had him on my team. Uh, I think maybe third team there's an argument for, uh, but you know, he has basically the same assist to, ter- assist to turnover ratio is like about even. And in the playoffs, it gets worse typically. And like, he's just, the ball handling isn't quite there. There are some weaknesses. Now, Anthony Davis, right, who we'll see what happens and whether or not an extension happens. To me, I have just so few, uh, if any, questions. You guys were talking about his jumper the other day and would like him to see hit some more this year. We've talked about that. But like in a playoff context, Pete, he is so obviously to me a dominant oh, yeah. force um and right just so, so like you don't have to worry about it at all you just you sort of that's just what the contract is ends up being what the contract is you do have to worry some about the health. yeah that's the thing that um, comes certain, to mind yeah and and the game's missed and, and as i i like to often say about ad though and knocking on wood here he has avoided the the type of injury say that Kawhi has had to deal with where like where it's something that requires every offseason seemingly a different surgery and like the the certainty seems with AD that he's going to miss some time with a minor injury, but he, he, for the most part has been able to be there um, in like for the two postseason runs. And then I, I still blame the bubble tax and what that required of all those mm-hmm. players to go through and the year that he missed with the Suns. Um, so like, basically you would come to me, you would clearly rather have Anthony Davis than Jalen Brown in terms of a player who's going to impact a playoff series. But I don't know that like when you're actually thinking about the team building aspect of that, if you're at Boston, if you're some of these other teams, you can't control that. You can't go out and necessarily acquire one of the few guys like Anthony Davis uh, right now, which 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 to me is just an interesting uh, dynamic. Now, here's here's let me put this in question form to you. So big wing, right? That's always been the thing that's won in the NBA yeah. uh, over the course of the years. Not no. always. Big men, right? Yeah. Then into the big wing, into the big yeah. wing era. So big men dominated for many many years, but then the big wing, like with with Jordan whatever you want to call bird and magic mm-hmm. um, in, in sort of uh, on and on into Kobe and, and uh, in Durant and LeBron and so on. I mean, the three point line, I think just in a basic sense, uh, even if a guy like Jordan wasn't a three point shooter, I think that having that spacing and sort of a, the reward for an additional point made perimeter players more valuable in a way where this that absolutely changed. And I do think that was the event that like that flipped it over. I do too. And, and I, don't, I don't think just offensively, I think because, and, and especially yep. more recently, because certain bigs, right. Those, those bigs that dominated so much, they could just sit under the basket in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and that, at a certain point, right. And I think that somewhat the Suns, right. Figure this out a little bit, the Mavericks to an extent, uh, certainly the Warriors, like then the big man evolution has now come. This is where I want to get to with Anthony Davis with you though, yeah. where now Anthony Davis you can't you can't just pull. Oh, you want to pull him out to the perimeter? Okay, you know Tyrese Halliburton block at the rim, um, right? Driving into him. At Steph Indiana Curry, Mike. Steph, Steph Curry. Curry in a playoff series, yeah. crucial. Damian stop. Lillard in a playoff series. James Harden in a playoff series. Any anybody. So he is now like where the game has evolved. This is why I think AD continues to be so criminally underrated it's, in a uh, lot of ways. Yes, right. And yes. and I think the players that have a chance to sort of get to that point would be are not near the offensive player that he is. This is uh this is like Evan Mobley, this is Wen Benyama, we'll see, right? We'll see how he looks. J- Jared Jackson Jr. I I would be bull- I'm b- more bullish on after seeing how much offense he was able to carry um once Ja missed the time at the end of last year and then even against the Lakers 
in the first round. He I, he was very impressive to me. Yeah, even with Anthony Davis on the from a scoring standpoint, so he might be the closest. But like that to me, Pete is is not the thing. Like when Jalen Brown signed, oh, big wing, like that's the player, that's the hardest guy to get in the NBA. I'm just wondering if if we're under we're not recognizing how much what Anthony Davis does and how little that's uh, that's appreciated, particularly uh, with what what that does to a modern offense um, in the NBA today. That is that's spot on, Mike, and that's one of the great tensions that's happened over the last 10, 15 years in the NBA is like how can you keep your big man on the floor and the value of being able to do that while still staying big? Like, for example. In the first round of the playoffs, when Golden State played Sacramento, they go through the same chess match that we love to geek out about about here on this pod uh, between the teams. And by the end of the series, Trey Lyles was playing a lot of time at the five. And it was out of the necessity. And the Warriors play a different style of basketball than pretty much anybody. Uh, and so, but they had dictated the terms to Sacramento to the degree where like they couldn't keep Sabonis on the floor or, you know, a guy like, like Len got a few minutes here and there, but by the end of the series, it really wasn't that. And Sacramento had had to go so small that they were now really vulnerable to penetration and shots around the rim. And so Steph had like what, 51 in that game seven. And a big part of it was him getting into the paint and doing a lot of damage into there. And so Anthony Davis being a guy defensively that is impervious to that, to the point where actually part of the Lakers strategy is no, AD, you didn't do this all game, but now you're switching out onto Steph 30 feet from the basket and you can hang, you can make it a difficult shot. You can get a good contest up. You're not just, now he's going to lose some battles, Mike, right? But the ability to keep a, a athlete that size on the court, the cascading effect that it has on your defense is just immeasurable. And that's, like you said, he's criminally underrated, Mike. And he's giving you 25 a game at 60% true shooting percentage, oftentimes on unassisted baskets. It's like, I don't know, man. No, so, so that's the that's the thing to kick back that I want to just hammer this point into the ground before we move on to maybe make one other point and then we'll let you guys go. Um, so if Anthony Davis was the player that he was defensively, and then on offense, all he did was like uh, was let's say screen and roll to the rim and, and catch lob dunks or space, just one of those two type roles on offense. That would still be an amazing player yes. and a player that any team in the NBA would want. Well, so he can do both of those things. Now, he, he obviously he stopped popping out and shooting a bunch, um, but you can also actually give him the ball as a primary creator. Mm -hmm. He can take guys off the dribble like. I don't even know that the Lakers did that as much as they should have based on Pete, how the playoff opponents were gauging the scouting report defensively. They were trying to limit and trap and double Anthony Davis on offense while he was doing all this stuff on defense. And, and so here we are right back into this whole thing of, all right, well, Jalen Brown, the max extension and the two way wing, like there are, there were holes in his game um, that impacted Boston's ability to actually win their series, which they eventually lost to Miami. Part of that was because I think he had like eight turnovers in game seven. You know, there like Anthony Davis had a couple of shooting night duds and was still a net positive in a massive way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's that I just this is the part where I I, I think the AD narrative and, and I, I probably should just stop now because I've been so obvious about it. Um, it's just like it, that's it gives the Lakers such a big advantage, um, I think that in what to do with the rest of the roster and why they could they could they could afford to somewhat be uh be like just practical in the pieces that they brought back from what was working last year 
I think the main thing that fuels the AD narrative is his health, right? And and I think that that is way overplayed. And you know, he played more minutes than Jaron Jackson Jr. did, who won the award. And the only time he's ever missed a playoff game was in that twenty one series, which I totally agree the bubble with the bubble tax idea because we weren't the only team. All yeah, two straight years of playing NBA basketball. You know, all yeah. four teams that made the conference finals in twenty twenty were absolutely gassed and went out. I think everyone was done by the end of the first round, right? Yes, this has been a pet project of mine. <laughs> so thank you for just reciting that. I will. I will continue to preach it where I can. And so. That was the only time AD's ever missed a playoff game, right? And so, yes, as he had injuries, of course, but I, I just feel like he's framed through such a negative light that when he takes a like the shot that he took from Looney in that game four, where and we were down. This is the thing too. This is what pisses me off because there should be a degree of gratitude of like there. You know how Austin gets hit in the face all the time. He gets hit in the face all the time because he puts his freaking face in places where other people are like, eh, I'd really rather not because they played enough basketball to know that that like rip over in a triple threat position. Yeah, you can catch an elbow to the chops on that if you're too close. AD does that all the time. This is part of the part of why he gets hurt sometimes is that when he turns it on, he's in the mix for everything. He got more contested rebounds this year, Mike, than anybody in the league per game. Right. And I think was second overall, despite playing like. 13, 14 less games than the next closest guy that was up there at the top of the leaderboard. So AD goes in and is putting his face right in big ass Kavon Looney's territory. And he takes one right. Like you saw how squarely on the replays he took that. And then afterward, everyone, oh, ha ha, AD, you know, he's so soft, this and that. And it's like, and did he miss a game? No. Were we down by like 12 at that point with only, I think, four minutes left in the game? And again, where it would have been super easy for him to just be like on a shot like that, hey, I'm just going to run back or jog back on on defense, right? But instead, no, he goes to crash the boards and put himself in the mix to try to make a play, see if he can ignite a comeback. And it didn't work out. And he took a shot to the chops. And then the narrative afterward, all the shows and things like that, oh, AD, AD's better be back for the next game and things like that. It's like, man, fuck you people. (laughs) <laughs> this this taps into a, a part of the t- of the text thread about like when somebody says something right and then um i in in the specific instance that you're talking about i totally agree like that stuff was ridiculous it was nonsense and and now pete i'm just i'm trying to to pull together all of the points that you've made like from from this specific pod and thinking about roster building and um contracts and and how it's going to impact things the next way and we've talked a lot about ad being sort of a uh, a centerpiece now I, I think that at least internally right the way that we're viewed forget whatever the narrative on him is outside I think internally what he's shown in these postseason runs specifically and how much of a key factor he can be to winning uh to just winning basketball yes. games so that's right that's plugged in that's established and I think what the what the, the a question it's hard to view like LeBron in the term in the, the way of a question mark because of his greatness, but just it's just literally We're uncharted aged. territory, That's Mike. We've like never what? seen a guy, uncharted, never seen yeah. a guy in this position. But and yet, it's just it's also what I'm not going to do is just assume the worst, right. right? And assume that it's going to get because he has so many different he has so many different ways of being successful. Um, he's like he's still big, he's still strong, he's still fast, right? For even if he's not going to get back in transition, he's still smart. Like he. There are ways that he can impact the game, but like what from a salary and roster and all that kind of composition standpoint, I do think that the Lakers have have put together enough uh, of, a, of a stable of talent with the one key ex- exception being 
behind AD and defensively de- like LeBron in terms of a center, if that's where you can use him, that still is the sore spot to me. Um, and and the weak spot and the spot that could lead to losses next year, which is why yep. I would have the Lakers like, uh, you know, slightly below Denver, even mm-hmm. Phoenix um, in, as we've been over in because that that to me is a lot to ask of a Jackson Hayes, you know, uh, or uh, or even like Rui or Vanderbilt playing up. Uh, and uh, but that I don't think it's a it's a spot, Pete, that can't be addressed and can't be dealt with either with the right kind of veteran men. Um, deal or the right kind of smaller trade, which the Lakers have shown themselves to be very adept at making um, and give Rob Palinka and his staff credit for that. So like it's a, it's a spot where I think that I, I would be comfortable as uh, on this side of the coin, looking ahead relative to some of these other teams, like that are where the Lakers were two years ago, where no, they have to have a major shift, a major change if they're going to actually make noise when it when it counts. And that's including what's what's evolved with the salary cap. Good points, man. And I think that AD as that single point of failure, I, I agree, is the weakest point of the roster of, in terms of if he goes down. And that's part of the reason why like this 14th roster spot, it's funny because we've just lingered on it for way longer than any of the others. Every other move is happening in this 24 or 48 hour window. And then now we debate this for weeks at a time. But that point that you just made right there, Mike, that that if AD goes down, you know, it's a lot to ask of Jackson Hayes to hold down. And Pete, even even if he doesn't go down, even if he plays, you know, 75 games or something, the 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 ask of Anthony Davis. Yes. To all the, to be true. Because when he's on the court, like he doesn't, he doesn't just like take possessions off on defense. He he really doesn't. He like he's engaged. He's active. He cares about playing. He cares about winning. Another thing I think is a little bit underrated, where he might not need to be feel like he's the best player and needs to get all NBA. But when he's on the court, he does care uh, about which is which. I think his defensive effort sort of backs up. But I just the wear and tear that it takes on him. I want to sort of preemptively alleviate that you know put yeah. somebody out there and this is why like you guys had a whole pot about vando which i thought was great but that to me is part of the key for him i don't care about the optimized lineup uh for the playoffs which he probably wouldn't be in like i just want even if he's guarding perimeter players i just want him taking some of that load off and he will based on his energy his effort his connective all that he will take more of a load off i think than other players would and then i need another center to come in and do that too that's all. amen amen all right, this was fun. Uh, jumped around a little bit from the economics to AD, who's primed for an extension very soon. I hope everyone has a nice weekend. We'll be back next week. But until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Baines has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's in. And the Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two. One. Listen. Unbelievable. For the victory. 
It's over. And shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yeah. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic. Trying to disrupt Rondo, he puts it in. Here's Davis, 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.